This is Downtown the Podcast. Welcome to episode number 79 from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Rich Kimball along with Carrie Haskell. Our daily show, Downtown, originates from here Monday through Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine and streaming audio all around the globe at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We are brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, a couple of uh, very different guests on the program this week. First up, former Senator and Defense Secretary William Cohen talks with us about the state of diplomacy, defense in the world, and shares his thoughts on the impeachment proceedings. Someone who knows that lay of the land after being involved in the Nixon impeachment back in the 1970s. In the second half of the program, a little bit lighter. Mark Summers talks with us about his traveling road show. The hell is that show called, Carrie? <laughs> Double Dare. Double Dare, yes. Mark Summers talks with us about his traveling road share. <laughs> Mark Summers talks with us about his traveling road show of Double Dare Live, the children's favorite, wrapping up with a nationwide tour. And Mark visited with us in studio to talk about that and his career, along with our friend Danny Cashman. But let's get things underway by visiting with former Defense Secretary and United States Senator Bill Cohen. Great to be with you, Rich. Well, my goodness, are you going to be up here in the state for a wonderful event coming up on November 5th, the William S. Cohen Lecture Series at the Collins Center for the Arts with Secretary John Kerry, Defense and Diplomacy in an Uncertain World. I would say you have pretty good timing. <laughs> well, I think the, the last year or two has been uh, pretty uh, exciting in terms of... Um, being controversial, uh, being uh, unpredictable, things happening at uh, a uh, hyper velocity. So it's a uh, it's a really challenging time. I um, went to an event that was hosted by um, uh, Secretary Kerry at Yale last spring, and I made a deal with him. I said, "Okay, I'll come to Yale, but you've got to come to Maine." <laughs> and so that was uh, that was the origin of how uh, he is uh, coming up there. But I haven't seen him since. Uh, and we have not talked, but I assume that uh, given his background and my own, uh, we're going to uh, have a program in which uh, Felicia Knight is going to moderate it. No opening statements uh, and just uh, listen to the questions from Felicia. And uh, and if she opens it up to the, uh, the audience, we'll see if that works as well. But uh, I look forward to it, I think, uh, given... Um, uh, John Kerry's long history in the uh, in the Congress and uh, the Secretary of uh, State. It'll be a really interesting uh, program. So, why is diplomacy perhaps more important than ever? Well, because the world is more uncertain than ever. I don't think we've ever had a confluence of uh, events coming at us uh, with uh, such speed. And I mentioned the word velocity. If you look around the world and you see what's happening. We have a trade uh, war, so to speak, or a conflict with uh, with China. Uh, we uh, just saw what happened in uh, Syria uh, with getting uh, al-Baghdadi. Uh, also uh, looking at what's taking place between uh, Iran uh, and the Saudis in terms of Yemen. And then you uh, look over across the pond and you've got Brexit. 
uh, with the the Brits not knowing exactly what's going to unfold in the future. It's been there. Uh, it's been up in the air now for the last um, couple of years. So there's a lot of churning uh, taking place, uh, uh, events around the world, not to mention that we've got these tremendous fires uh, on the west coast of the United States and the ice caps uh, melting. And so uh, I think that in the past we've had one or two events come at us that are big events. Now we've got a lot of big events coming at us. And so uh, it requires um, – uh, diplomacy, certainly, uh, we're trying to very much reduce, if not eliminate, the need to take military action, with the exception of getting uh, al-Baghdadi uh, this past week. Um, but using military uh, action is always the last resort. Diplomacy has to be up front in terms of how do we engage, uh, should we engage. Uh, you have uh, the Trump administration is more isolationist uh, than uh, we've had in the past. So pulling back, pulling out of uh, uh, out of Syria, pulling out of uh, Iraq, pulling out of Afghanistan in the near future. So you've got this shrinking uh, back uh, to the United States, uh, America first type of thing. What does that mean for us? Uh, I, I take a different approach and have. Um, I believe that we have to be forward deployed in uh, with our diplomats, but also with our military um, in, in, in significant ways, not with significant numbers, but significant ways. Because uh, when you have alliances, you're dealing with people who share your, hopefully your ideals, but certainly your interests. And when you build these relationships, you're actually doing something we used to say in the Defense Department, uh, extending our defense perimeter. In other words, if we're just coming back to uh, uh, the United States and trying to build a wall around the United States, things are happening outside that wall that are not necessarily in our interest. And so can you shrink back from this world and be safe? Uh, I don't believe that's the case uh, any longer if it ever was, because you, um, you know, a pandemic is only a handshake or uh, an airplane ride away. And so we have issues where people can get on planes and come uh, to all of our major airports suddenly carrying a biological uh, disease as such or chemical weapon. And suddenly uh, with a biological weapon, everybody's infected. So, you know, how do you protect against that? Well, you have to have people who are forward deployed, doctors who are deployed. You have to have intelligence forward deployed. You have to be collecting information at all times. And so uh, the world is getting smaller. Uh, and it's turning faster. So under those circumstances, you want to get as much information as you can, as much good information as you can, and make sure that you are aware, alert, and can protect yourself from whatever is taking place. And so that requires engagement. And uh, and so I, I think it's it's not like establishing a Maginot line, which the French thought would protect them in years, uh, ages past. Uh, but um, we have to uh, understand that the world today, all of the big issues can only be handled by uh, having allies, people who you work with, who you trust, and who trust you. Uh, and that requires um, diplomacy. As I mentioned, Jim, uh, General Mattis, Secretary Mattis, has just joined our firm uh, at the uh, the Cohen Group. And, uh, of course, he left the uh, Trump administration because – he felt that his own views were in conflict with that of the president. And the president's entitled to have people that he wants and his share his philosophy. 
and Secretary Mattis uh, didn't share that philosophy because of his experience as a Marine, a four-star Marine, uh, and understanding that what it takes to defend against threats um, and to take advantage of opportunities means you have to be forward deployed. And so uh, it's just a, a difference in philosophy, but it's a critical one. And um, uh, I have not talked to uh, uh, Secretary um, um, Kerry yeah, at this point uh, since last spring, but I'm sure he feels the same way. I think any of us who have been uh, in uh, in the Senate feel the same way. I'm sure that um, Senator Collins uh, feels the same way, and and uh, uh, Angus King, Senator King, feel that we have to be deeply engaged in global affairs because we can't protect ourselves if we're just hunkered down uh, in the United States. Whether it's uh, in view of the recent, uh, what some would call abandonment of our allies, the Kurds, how much damage from your perspective have we done to our relationship with many of our allies? I think we've done a lot of damage, and that was most troubling to me. In fact, I was doing a television interview with uh, BBC, the British Broadcasting uh, System, and was alerted to this last year uh, when I was just about to do an interview and someone slipped me a piece of paper saying that the president had just announced that we're pulling our troops out of, uh, out of uh, Syria immediately. And uh, what do you have to say about that? And I felt then, as I did most recently in this past uh, effort, that we have abandoned people who've been fighting with us. You know, 11,000, almost 12,000 Kurds uh, were killed in helping us fight the war that we were waging against ISIS. Uh, And so uh, to just turn around without any notice, without any preparation for, well, if we're going to get out, how do you get out? Uh, How much planning does it take to make sure that you're able to evacuate a country um, in a safe fashion? And as we saw this most recent uh, pullout, uh, we had our own troops come under uh, some fire, and we had our own troops having to uh, really pack up and leave in in a hurry, uh, and it looked like shades of Vietnam where the mm. helicopters are lifting off and people are trying to hang on. Well, there were 100 and th- oh, 180,000 people, Kurds, who were ethnically forced out or cleansed uh, in a very short period of time, moved out. Uh, and so it sent a message. I talked to a number of people in the Middle East, and I talked to people in Latin America, uh, high officials, And they said, um, frankly, we no longer trust you. Uh, You don't keep your word. And uh, so that that takes a toll on us. Uh, I don't think it's lasting. But if it continues to – if we continue to operate in this fashion, then I think long-term it um, makes us more vulnerable. Because if you give your word, you should keep your word. And uh, when you make decisions on an impromptu basis – and the decision most recently to pull uh, our forces out of uh, Syria was made with a phone call with President Erdogan of Turkey. Um, but very little consultation, if any, with our allies, who were not told. Uh, and they've been with us. And so when you do make decisions without consulting with them, the next time you ask them to be with you, they're going to be less likely, less eager. And so those are things that... Um, Uh, We hope we can correct, Uh, but if we do them on too many occasions across multiple fronts, 
then I think it undercuts our credibility. And credibility is whether you're talking about your personal relationships, uh, professional relationships, um, business relationships, and certainly with geopolitical relationships. Uh, credibility is everything. And trust is the coin of the realm, as I say. We're talking with Secretary William Cohen here on downtown. Have we surrendered our moral leadership in the world? Uh, well, you know, people have looked to us uh, to uh, hold high the uh, the flame of liberty. And I think that uh, if we just approach everything as a transaction, uh, then I think that uh, that flame starts to flicker a little bit. And uh, I always take great pride that uh, we say we are we are the keeper of that flame. We're the ones. It's not exactly what John Kennedy said: "I'll bear any burden, uh, pay any uh, costs in order to ensure the success and survival of liberty." Um, and that's a shorthand expression of what he said. Uh, we've been through that, and I think that John Kennedy could not say that today, nor any other political leader say that today. But there's something between that and saying it's America first and kind of America only, because I think other countries look to us. And if they think that we're only for ourselves, then they're not going to be for us. So um, it's really important that we not look like we're only acting out of our self-interest. Self-interest is critical. Every country acts out of its self-interest. But beyond self-interest, we do... Uh, stand for opposing oppression, for promoting liberty, for promoting human rights. And that's what America stands for. It's not our military, although our military is the finest and the best in the world, in the history of the world. Um, that obviously is important, but that's not what makes America unique. It's really our values. And if uh, we don't hold up those values for others, not only to see, but to follow, then I think the world becomes darker and more dangerous. Uh, we're having a shift of power. Uh, China has become a, uh, a global economic power. They are determined to become a military power on a global basis. Uh, Russia is coming back from uh, after the fall of their empire. They're now starting to put pieces back together. They have been given a green light, certainly, and a foothold in Syria, in the Middle East now. Uh, they're certainly in Africa in, in a major way. Uh, and they've been in favor of weakening Europe. Uh, they were in favor of Brexit. They wanted uh, the British out of Brexit, out of uh, the EU. They want to see the EU start to crack and break up. They have been opposed to Ukraine having anything to do with the EU or thinking about becoming a member of the EU and certainly not that a member of the NATO. So you've got these forces at play in the world and it requires American strength and leadership and alliances. And so uh, I, I think without getting too political on the, on the air today, I, I think uh, President Trump has a much narrower view uh, of what our role in the world should be. Uh, namely that he doesn't like to see our troops forward deployed and wants to bring them home. Well, when you bring our troops home, it becomes far more difficult to send them anywhere again uh, since you don't have bases there, you don't have people who are receptive to you, uh, and frankly, they want to know why should they uh, accept your presence in the future. So those are things we have to think about in the long term. Uh, to me, it makes us less safe. 
if we're only uh, home-based here in the United States, that we have no foreign uh, footholds as such in other countries where we have similar values, uh, whether it's in, in Europe uh, or in parts of Latin America, certainly in parts of uh, Asia, and Japan, South Korea, Singapore. Uh, you start going down the list of countries that we have always been with since certainly the uh, end of World War II. And um, when they see us kind of just coming back to the United States and pulling up stakes, then they have to make uh, calculations. They have to make decisions on how do they protect themselves. It has to be Singapore first or Japan first or South Korea first. And all every country putting its own interests first, as they have to do, but they know that they can only be first if they have friends. They can only be first if they have alliances. Uh, they can only protect their self-interest when there are others who share their interests in making sure they're safe. So that's kind of a, my own view. I, I think I reflect adequately um, Secretary Mattis's view, and I suspect that we'll see on um, at the University of Maine that Secretary uh, Kerry will um, – reflect similar, if not identical, views. I have to talk about the home front for a moment. We're in the early stages of this impeachment investigation. Yeah. You were a key part of what went on during the Nixon impeachment. Is this the right path, do you believe, for Congress to be on at this point? Uh, I do. Um, I, I think that um, actions have been taken, the most recent, of course, the most prominent, of which uh, having uh, the President of the United States through his associates and himself uh, attempt to get uh, the new Ukrainian president to dig up dirt on a potential um, competitor, Joe Biden and his family. Um, that crosses the line for me. Uh, that That is tantamount to trying to extort uh, uh, something from another country that's in desperate need of our assistance. You have the Congress of the United States, the House and the Senate appropriating almost $400 million to provide military assistance to prevent the Russians from overrunning their country. And we appropriate that, that money, and then the president calls up and says, well, uh, not so fast. Uh, we're not going to um, let this money and these resources come to you unless you do me a favor. And the favor is one not for the United States, but for the president's political um, program for 2020, his uh, campaign. Uh, that, to me, when, when you've just been through uh, having a, uh, a long investigation by Robert Mueller saying, were the Russians colluding with the other uh, president and his administration? And after finally going through all of that process and say, well, the president did, in fact, invite the Russians to come in. He said, Russia, if you're listening, uh, maybe you can help find those 30,000 missing emails. And the Russians were listening. Within four hours, they had uh, all of their uh, uh, their top GRU folks uh, you know, looking after Hillary Clinton's emails and those of the Democratic Party in order to release them and embarrass her. Well, you're inviting another country, an adversary, to attack the Democratic system. So that was that was one example. But then to go beyond that, say just as you get through that investigation, the next thing you do is get on the phone and ask uh, the Ukrainians to do the same, to go after potential um, competitor Biden. Um, that's not that's 
Yeah, that's totally contrary to everything we believe in. Other countries should not be invited. They may try to attack our system without invitation, but we don't invite them and we don't try to extort them into doing that. And I think that crossed the line. Now, do I think um, that uh, the Senate at this point, the two-thirds would vote uh, to uh, uh, convict President Trump? At this point, it's unlikely. But I think we have to lay down the marker saying this kind of conduct, if it were done by anyone else, if this were done by Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or anyone else, it would be completely unacceptable and we'd be running that person out of the White House. So what is not acceptable acceptable for others is not acceptable for President Trump. And we don't want to let it go and say, well, let's just let it go. Because if you lower the standards, and again, we expect the very highest standards of our trustees, our fiduciaries, if you start lowering the standards and say that's okay, then it's going to be okay for the future presidents to do. And that's something I don't think any of us really want to see take place. Uh, impeachment is tough, um, and in, you know it, it's going to be emotional. On the other hand, we have to lay out what are we doing with this country. We know democracies globally are under attack. The countries like uh, like Russia, like Turkey, uh, like China, and others, they are autocratic, uh, and they do not hold democratic values. So we do, and we want to treasure them and hold on to them, but we don't want to see Russia trying to manipulate our system, trying to corrupt our system, trying to use the technology available today that they can uh, merge truth and falsehoods into a single message where you can't tell what's true, what's false. That takes us into a grave new world in which the American people won't know if their votes are ever really counted and won't know what they're voting for. So is that something we want to contribute to or say, no, stop? Uh, Russia, and I've never heard the president say this, Russia, if you try and interfere with our system again, there will be heavy consequences to pay. pay. Uh, And I haven't heard that. What I've heard is the president of the United States uh, sort of laugh uh, with uh, with Putin, or certainly have Putin laugh. But when given the chance in Helsinki uh, to say that uh, Russia should not interfere uh, in our elections, the president said, President Putin said he didn't do it. And I believe him, even though all of our intelligence community said they attacked us. So that's something I think we have to set that out uh, and and then go beyond that and say, it wasn't acceptable for that, and even though that may not have constituted an impeachable offense, uh, it sets a precedent which now is being followed by the President of the United States sending on the phone, calling the President of Ukraine, saying, no, no, you don't get a meeting. He's got his uh, his ambassador, uh, Sunland, saying, you don't get a meeting with the President until until you cough up information on Biden. Uh, you don't get $400 million that the Congress has just appropriated to help defend you until you cough up money, uh, more um, uh, information on the Bidens. Boy, that's that's taking our political, our politics to a level that I've never seen before, and I don't want to see it uh, legitimized. So, yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be uh, emotional. Um, there are two sides of this, and there are strong uh, supporters on the president's side. But we had that back in Watergate, too. 
Uh, I, I was in the middle of that, and people said it's going to tear the country apart. Uh, it's going to unravel the country. And what I said at that time is what I would say and do say today. Uh, having an impeachment hearing or process and vote it will not tear this country apart. What will tear the country apart is if you allow the slow unraveling of that thread that binds us together in terms of being the United States of America holding these ideals. So um, that's my own view, and obviously uh, others uh, will differ, um, but that's what I believe, and that's what I've been talking about on various programs. And um, it's bound to be controversial because politics is tough, and there are strong supporters of the president and what he's doing. And I may support uh, some of the things he's doing, although I disagree with the way but that's just me. Uh, that doesn't uh, mean just because I disagree with either the manner or the method uh, that that uh, should be any basis for uh, removal. But when you start engaging in activities that I think are totally antithetical to everything that we believe in and stand for, then I think you uh, you have to call them on it. Well, we appreciate that, uh, Secretary Cohen. I was thinking, by the way, earlier today that the first time I interviewed you, was 47 years ago. I was, I was a student at the Garland Street Junior High School, and after oh you got God. elected to Congress, I sent you a list of questions. By the way, I hear they've renamed that Junior High now, uh, and you were kind enough to respond to that just a few days after the election. So thank you for 47 years ago, and, and oh, thank you well, for today as well. My pleasure. I'm always available to try to answer questions, and Again, I, I expect there will be uh, lots of uh, questions that we're going to go through in the next year. It's going to be uh, pretty emotional. And, you you know, we've got a, a great political system. We've got two parties vying uh, for leadership roles. And all I've ever been concerned about is making sure that the rule of law is what we have and not the law of rule. I don't want one-man rule under any circumstances. I don't want to replicate what they have in Russia or China or any of the other autocratic countries where the rules don't count anymore. I mean, if you think about it, um, we don't have confirmed cabinet members. Many of them are empty or acting. And so the Senate's been cut out of many of their confirmation duties uh, and, and because the president thinks he doesn't need them that he can make decisions on his own. And, you know, that's his that's his um, policy. And the question is, is that good for the country? Or should there be uh, people who are not simply yes men and women, but give the president uh, you know, good advice and that uh, he can choose to reject it, but he needs to have people in place that have gone through the vetting process, have gone through the confirmation process, so that members of Congress, especially in the Senate, they have a unique role, have an opportunity to pass judgment and give their advice and consent. And when you um, skirt by that and you don't send people up to be confirmed, then you're saying, I'm running this show by myself. I don't need this. I can appoint them. They can be acting and I can remove them and the Senate has nothing to say about it. So I think these are big issues uh, and issues that need to be addressed, and hopefully they will be. Secretary Cohen, always a great pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Great to be with you. Thanks so much. Secretary William Cohen here on Downtown, the podcast. We will take a break. After this word from Cross Insurance, we're back to get slimed.
Mark Summers of Double Dare next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. <laughs> Our next guest on the podcast is a quite a career stand-up comedian, been a game show host, hosted his own talk show, host of a food and several Food Network shows and producer for them, but to an entire generation best known as the host of Double Dare, which is touring the country presently, Double Dare Live. And Mark Summers joined us in studio recently to talk about the show's appearance here in Bangor, Maine, and where else they're going around the country. Mark Summers, along with our friend Danny Cashman. A wonderful show for the whole family is making its way here in December, Double Dare Live, and to talk about it, we have Danny Cashman here. <laughs> Hi, I, I have no need to be here. I don't understand. Uh, uh, as well as his friend and associate, Mark Summers. Mark, thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, thank you for asking me. You know, none of this would have happened without Dan Cashman. He's, no. he's the glue uh, in Maine for whatever I do here. I, You know, I'm the only human in the world who comes here often from California. I mean, I couldn't come from a further spot, but I'm here all the time because of this man, actually. Yeah, how did that happen? How did you guys form this uh, relationship? Dan, you tell the story. I stalked Mark Summers. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Beginning and the end of the story right there. How old were you when you first contacted me? I contacted you when we were doing the second version of the night show, so that would have been, uh, I was 23. So uh, was the internet around then? I forget. It was sort of around. Yeah, I think that's how I found I'm you. Old. I think it was because the internet started, and I said, "Hey, Google Mark Summers," and there you were. And there I was, and you contacted me, and I, I think I called you, didn't I? Yeah, you did. And we got together in Boston, and uh, you, uh, we had a drink, and we talked about game shows and the night show and your career, and it was wonderful. My wife and I, and. It was just, it was such a nice conversation. And then I think, I'm, I hope we've been friends ever since. How old are you now? I am now 41. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Almost half a lifetime ago. Wow. You know, yeah. so, and, and I find it interesting because you can get in touch with almost anybody because of the lovely WWW World Wide Web thing. <laughs> and, uh, and because of the direct message, instant message, uh, Facebook, uh, you name it, Twitter, people find me. And <laughs> certain people sort of, you know, tweak your interest. And there was just something about, you know, this young broadcaster who uh, wanted to talk showbiz. And, and I always want to talk showbiz. And, and it was just delightful. And here we are. Oh, it's going to be almost 20 years, man. Yeah, almost 20 that's years. That's cool. So, well, yeah. well, that's one example. Are you surprised to find out that this show meant so much to so many people? I didn't realize it until the last few years. We started the show October 6, 1986. Uh, in Philadelphia, of course, went worldwide uh, after that in uh, across the country anyway. And um, I was just a guy who was 34 years old and trying to get a job. So we were out there playing game shows, but I didn't know the impact it had on a particular generation. And when it got brought back uh, last year and we toured it, my head exploded because <laughs> everybody had a, a, a story, a memory, uh, a birthday party, something that this show touched in their life. And uh, it's kind of touching to me because we do these meet and greets 
and and I just didn't get it. And now I'm I, I've actually at 67 and a half. I finally do. Well, and now a whole new generation gets to see the show. My son and I uh, enjoyed it during SpongeBob Week. The, oh yeah, the second season of the <laughs> reboot. How was that? That was cool. Yeah, we did forty season one, and then we did a bunch of specials. We did a uh, WWE week. We did a SpongeBob Week. Uh, coming up soon is a Halloween week, and then we did a, a Christmas week as well. Uh, but the cool part is, we are coming here to Bangor, Maine, and uh, because my phone is so slow and it's not working, I'm going to actually. Uh, Paul, here we go. Uh, December eighth, three o'clock, Cross Insurance Center. Uh, uh, and uh, you can buy tickets and be there. We do a lot of audience participation where uh, the first half, because this generation who grew up with it really wants to play more than the generation that's even watching it now, we have adults against the kids the whole first half oh where we do physical challenges. And we bring up the adults and we bring up the kids and we do them. And often in some cities, the kids win everything, but in other cities, the adults win everything. And sometimes it's sort of split down the middle. But it's so much fun. And then um, there was another show I did called What Would You Do? Mm. where we played a little thing called Musical Pies. And for some reason, this part of the show just makes everybody giddy. And we bring eight or ten people up and we play musical pies. And then we pick uh, four families out of the audience. We select two to play. We actually play Double Dare. We do a uh, obstacle course where we give away, uh, if you uh, get all eight obstacles in 60 seconds or less, you win a 1000 bucks right there. And so there are not many shows where moms and dads and kids can play together. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be doing this. You had a great mentor, too. What did you learn from Soupy Sales? Soupy, Soupy was the guy that I grew up watching. My mom was from Toledo, Ohio, and Soupy was doing a show uh, in Detroit. So I'd get up every morning and have breakfast with Soupy. And then he did lunch with Soupy. And then in 1976, I became a regular at the comedy store. Most people don't know that my career started uh, doing stand-up comedy. And I started with Dave Letterman and Robin Williams and Jay Leno and Gary Shandling. We all started together. And uh, Soupy was playing the main room. And I went back there and knocked on the door, shaking in my, you know, boots because there was no World Wide Web. But I just figured I'll try it. And we became very good friends. What he didn't know was when I was going to school in Boston back in 71, 72, I lied to him and told him that I was doing a documentary on what makes people laugh. And I, <laughs> I got him in the Sheraton Hotel room for about three hours. And I still have that recording. And I handed wow. him a DVD of that, you know, recording that we did back in the day. And then we became fast friends and I was at his house and we would go to lunch at the Friars Club and I was always pinching myself saying, I can't believe I'm sitting here. The guy that I uh, looked up to is, is now my friend. Uh, you also, you mentioned the stand-up career. You also, and still are, a magician as well. Yeah, um, you know, magic kind of got me from point A to point B. Uh, I put myself through college uh, doing magic. Then I became a regular at the Magic Castle when I first uh, moved out there. And uh, there's so many people in the industry, from Johnny Carson to Steve Martin uh, and many in between, who started their careers as a magician. And when you're growing up in Indiana, show business is so far away. I figured, well, heck, if Johnny did magic, if I did magic, maybe I could get into show business too. And that's what it worked out to be. Now, we've got a friend uh, from around here who uh, used to perform out the magic. Really? Castle. Dean Stern. I don't know if you know Dean. Don't know the name, but yeah. uh, that's pretty cool. And we've had Jeff Altman on the show oh, a bunch of times. Have you really? Yeah. Jeff is a brilliant magician. Yes. He uh, does great close-up. His card uh, stuff is great. And uh, yeah, he was at the store at the same time. I, was, I haven't seen him in a while. I used to produce a show called Ultimate Revenge. Uh, Ryan Seacrest was my host. You may have heard of him. And uh, <laughs> and we used to have Jeff on do bits uh, with people. He's, he's one of the funniest guys out there. Mark Summers in studio with us along with Danny Cashman. Double Dare Live coming to the Cross Center on December 8th.
then there's that whole other career of yours, and uh, one of my all-time favorite shows on Food Network is Unwrapped. Yeah. I, I can't get enough of that show. One of the longest-running shows on the channel, uh, and I backed into that in a weird way. I was actually trying to produce a show for a chef, and the executive who was in the room kept saying, well, why don't you do something for us? And I thought, well, I'm not a chef, and I barely cook. Well, what would I possibly do? And the first show we did was called It's a Surprise. It was surprise parties that we threw. The big surprise, nobody was watching. And uh, <laughs> and so that got canceled. And then they threw this unwrap thing at me. And I said, sure, let's do it. I said, at the time, um, Biography was the number one show on A&E, if you remember. And I said, I think Unwrapped can be for Food Network what Biography is for A&E. And that's what it became for many years. Uh, Emerald and I used to go back and forth as to who was number one that week. And, uh, and, you know, so that turned into something crazy. And now, um, you know, I, I produced a bunch of stuff uh, for food, uh, Dinner Impossible, Restaurant mm. Impossible. And uh, I have a new series that's coming out in uh, November on Discovery called The Last Unknown um, with my partner Ian Shive. We're going to islands that the United States owns out in the Pacific that nobody's allowed to go to. There are no humans there. It's birds and, and other uh, animals and plants and uh and we're sort of showing nature uh, crossing with history, and that uh, begins the end of November. So my career has been sort of a checkerboard of really, you know, nothing matches, but it all seems to work. Well, I'm a history teacher in my day job, so I loved History IQ. Oh, my. You actually know that. <laughs> yes. You're the one who watched that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be the hardest game show in the history of TV, and it was so hard nobody could answer any of the questions. <laughs> but we did two seasons of that somehow, and, uh, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. And you never know who's watching along the way. It can be little kids. It could be Lin-Manuel Miranda. It could be the First Lady of the United States. It's so weird. Uh, I was I was at uh, uh, Hamilton, and a few minutes before the show, somebody tapped me on the back and said, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, I heard you were in the uh, theater tonight. Would you mind meeting him after the show? <laughs> Would I mind meeting him? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Uh, and all I wanted to do was talk about, uh, you know, the show, Hamilton, and all I wanted to do was talk about Unwrapped. It was pretty funny. But that was a, a lovely moment. And uh, you never know, you know, Neil Patrick Harris and uh, people who, you know, were weaned a la Mr. Cashman here <laughs> on the silly shows uh, that I did. And, you know, the influence that you have on people, you know, uh, Dan's uh, big influence, I think, would be David Letterman. And uh, if you watch his show, and I'm sure people do, because you've been doing it how many years now? Uh, nine years, most recently. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you watch Johnny Carson, you know, he had bits of Jonathan Winters and bats, bits of Jack Benny in him. And uh, a lot of people influenced me. And, and other than Dave, who else would be? Uh... Well, you and Johnny Carson. They were the big really? three. They were the three. Uh, you, I, it's, do I say they? What's proper English here? They, <laughs> I you, don't know. Don't ask the history teacher or the games I, guy. <laughs> get, get us an English teacher in here. Them, um, them people. That's them why. Them people. people. <laughs> Y'all. Uh, you and Johnny Carson and David Letterman were the three that I grew up watching. And at some point in that triangle of viewership, I said, I want to do something on television when I grow up. And it was really in that... 86 to 89 time frame that mm. I discovered all three of those shows and it just sort of consumed my life to be able to try and do something uh, in broadcasting or television. And I've seen this show grow because the first time I came here to do it, we were in the back of a bookstore or something. It was an antique shop. Is yes. that what it was? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and the last two times I did, you know, here you are in this great facility uh, that uh, looks like uh, Letterman Studio practically and you got the, the band is amazing and your sidekick is good and and uh, I've, we actually tried to syndicate this thing. I wanted, I still think Dan is an amazing talent. And I, I really thought that this is cool and, you know, sort of quirky. 
Uh, but nobody got it, you know. Mm. I, I and you know, I, we get it, we get it. Yeah, <laughs> and I get it too. I, I just don't understand why people don't understand that. How does this guy produce a quality TV show in in Bangor, Maine, getting these people, you know, to come on? But you know, you're relentless, which is what makes it work. You find people and you get them to do. Well, who was the coolest guest that you got? I mean, you got Kermit the Frog, didn't you? No, we had uh, the Count from Sesame Street. The Count, that was, was kind of fun. I yeah, get those guys mixed up. It's, it's, it's hard to say who the coolest is because... Because you have two of them right here. <laughs> two of them right here. I can't Of spray. course. Uh, but we've we've just been very fortunate to have people like yourself and, and you, Rich, who have come back to our show several times. And uh, it's What was just, the hardest great. get, though? What was the hardest one to... Uh, gosh, the hardest get I would say is your dad, probably, right? My dad was a tough one. Yeah. No, I'd say Paula Cole. We had to go back to her several times until she finally agreed to do the show. We did it in Westbrook. And uh, now we're talking about having her back because she had such a great time. I believe because she had such a great time doing the show. Yeah, after but, you do it, you want to do it again. Yeah, because I think people have visions of like Wayne's World and, you know, maybe <laughs> one camera and perhaps this is on public access. They don't read the whole email because it's a bit wordy. Um, but then they come and do the show and they say, oh, yeah, this actually is something like a late night talk show. And then they they might like to come back. So, you know, through Dan's friendship, he's been kind enough to say, you know, when you go into these various cities, uh, you're fighting, you know, a million other uh, things going on at the same time. So you want people to know that we're at this theater and it's December 8th and it's three o'clock in the afternoon. And Dan said, hey. We can do radio. We can shoot promos. We can do all sorts, all sorts of stuff. So I said, "Hey, I'm on the East Coast. Let's uh, come up and do it." So uh, we're just having fun. And doing a little skit for your show as oh, well. Yeah. Can we say that? Is that all right? Sure, now? sure. Yeah, that'll be uh, running sometime. I don't know. I think in November. Okay, so look for that. Right, there cool. we go. Yep. And, and you know, Mark, and and we get this from Dan as well. You've done so many things through your career, but the name of the game is, and, and what's made you successful, and I think what makes Dan successful is, you're yourself. Uh, who you are on television is who you are in person. And I think in, in that medium especially, people can tell. People can see that sincerity. And when that comes through, that leads to a terrific career. Well, I always think you're not special because you're on TV. You know, it just it, it's a cool job. And I always <laughs> wanted to do it and had a passion for it. And I was lucky enough to pull it off. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do most of what I've done my entire career for free because it's just so darn much fun. Um, and I, I feel bad for people who get up every day and hate their job. I mean, I can't imagine uh, doing that. So, um, you know, I feel honored that people have followed me for almost 40 years now, which is frightening. Um, and I love the stories, and I love the people who come to these theaters. We've been doing, uh, I've done up to this point, 60 cities. Uh, we've played all the Fox theaters. we played the one in Atlanta, played the one in Detroit. Um, and they're beautiful, 3,500 seats. I don't know how many people uh, this these. So, you know, you hope to fill it up or at least uh, half of that. But, you know, it's December. It's uh, near Christmas. It's a good family time. Uh, you know, you can celebrate the, the holiday season together a little early. So, uh, you know, we hope people come out and join us and participate and have fun. December 8th, Cross Insurance Center in Bangor, Double Dare Live. Mark, thank you so much for stopping by to visit with us. Thank you very much. And Dan, thank you. Oh, thank you. And Dan, thank you. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm just happy to exist. <laughs> That's Mark Summers with Danny Cashman. Mark's Double Dare Live tour uh, will next be in Brookville, New York on December 6th. Here in Bangor, Maine, December 8th. Syracuse, New York on the 10th of December. Uh, in Connecticut, at Foxwoods on the 13th of December. Medford, Mass. on the 14th. Reading, PA on the 15th. He is a busy man in the month of December. Check it out, DoubleDareLiveTour.com for more information on Mark Summers. Our thanks to Mark and to U.S. Senator, former Senator and Defense Secretary William Cohen for joining us on this week's Downtown the Podcast. Thanks to you as well, and thanks to our sponsors at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. 
We'll see you next time on Downtown.